I'm going to have us look this morning at verses 4 through 5. And so, would you stand now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? I think it's safe to say this morning that there was a single conversation that changed the course of the Reformation of the 16th century. A single conversation. And it happened on a July evening of 1536 in the city of Geneva. Uh, A young man named John Calvin was uh, on his way to the city called Strasbourg. And uh, because there were forces fighting in between the most direct route from where he was living in Basel to the city of Strasbourg, he took a detour. And that detour led him to the city of Geneva. And it was the intention of Calvin and the band of cohorts who were with him was to make a pit stop. They were just going to stay in the city of Geneva for one night and refresh themselves with some sleep and to take some supplies with them on their journey. But Calvin's plans were thwarted on that evening by a man named William Farrell, who had been the pastor of the city for a couple of years. And he had come to know of a man named John Calvin because he had recently been publishing some writings about the Reformation which were causing a fury among the French-speaking world. In fact, the, the, uh, the threats had become so severe that Calvin had to actually flee for his life. And so um, Calvin tracked him down to the inn in which he was staying. And when Farrell fixed his eyes upon Calvin, he saw somebody that looked rather pathetic. Because as a 27-year-old man, Calvin had aged way beyond his years, and he looked frail and weak and sickly. But in the same moment as Calvin, or rather Pharaoh, locked eyes upon Calvin, he discerned that he was the man whom God was leading to lead the Reformation. The only problem is that Calvin himself didn't know it. And so as uh, Pharaoh proposed to him the opportunity to be called to stay on in Geneva and become the leading pastor of the city, this is what Calvin said by way of response. I cannot stay. I need quiet. I must study where I am not disturbed. You see, Calvin thought the way to prepare to become a reformer was the quiet, academic, contemplative life in a library, in a cloister, surrounded to like-minded, quiet academics. But Pharaoh had a different idea of preparation. In fact, his idea was so radically different than Calvin's that at the end of the disturbing conversation with him, he said, may God curse you and your studies if you do not join me to do the work he's called you to do. 
And as Calvin slept upon that, and as he thought upon that, and as he prayed upon it, he realized that Pharaoh was a messenger of God to him to begin to take up the work of the Reformation in the nitty-gritty of life. That evening proved to be not just a course correction in the life of John Calvin, but it proved to be a course correction in the life of the church in the Western world. As I thought about that, I couldn't help but bring it to mind as I read Calvin's initial comment in our passage here this morning, because this is his comment. Whatever may be the admiration commonly entertained for celibacy in a philosophical life, altogether removed from ordinary custom, wise and thoughtful men are convinced by experience that they who are not ignorant of ordinary life but are practicing the duties of human intercourse are better trained and adapted for governing in the church. See what Calvin is saying here. He said, I am aware of those kinds of people who think that the best way to prepare to be a reformer and a leader in the church is to lead a quiet, uh, contemplative, celibate life. He's aware of it, he says. But then he goes on to say in his comment, but experience teaches wiser and thoughtful men. And as I began to think about that, that comment in view of what I understand about his calling to ministry, I began to realize that this was Calvin talking about himself. This is an autobiographical comment where he explains that experience had been his teacher. And what Calvin discerned from understanding his own preparation for ministry of being thrown into the fire that the best way to be trained to be a servant in the house of God was the ordinary life. Because not only did Calvin take up his calling as a pastor, but he also got married, became a husband and a stepfather. And his school of training from 1536 on was getting his hands dirty with the ordinary things of life. And that is what shaped and molded him into the man who led the Reformation of the 16th century and made the Reformed world what it is even to this day. I find it to be of some interest this morning that as we move from verses 2 and 3 and now into verse 4 and 5, it feels like one of those planes that drops out of the clouds and now descends to uh, the open air and the way approach to the landing strip because all of a sudden it feels like we are moving away from what feels idealistic and maybe somewhat difficult to grasp to that which you can put your hands upon. You see, as we come into the qualification of what it means to be prepared for ruin the church The Word of God teaches us that the person who is made ready for rule in the church is the person who has exemplified himself and been tested in the realm of ordinary life at ruling his own house well. Paul basically says here, if a man can't lead his home, why should he lead the church? 
Now, I'll be quick to say that I don't believe that this text is teaching that every man who becomes an elder or pastor has to be married and have a family. But if he does, he better distinguish himself in this area because that is the requirement of the Word of God, that the man who would be prepared and qualified for rule in the church, we can measure whether he's qualified or not by the measuring stick of house management. How does he care for his own house? So we're going to think about that this morning under two parts. The condition of household management and the manner of household management. And one of the things that I would say here about condition is something that probably struck you as you read through the qualification with me this morning is that this is the first uh, set of qualifications which feels like it's being enlarged. After all, what did we read before? That the overseer is to be above reproach. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. They are just sort of one-word qualifications. And then all of a sudden, when you come into this qualification about rule, not only is it expansive as the apostle unfolds in uh, the qualification in the entirety of verse 4, but then he makes an argument for it in verse 5. I think we should appreciate the fact that, that Paul here makes an argument for this qualification, and he hasn't done that before. And so by making an argument for the qualification, it stands out to us in greater vividness and force. And it's uh, really what scholars would call an argument from the lesser to the greater. John Calvin jumps on the argument from, from the start, and he says this argument, John, from the lesser to the greater, is in itself manifest that he was unfit for governing a family, will be altogether unable to govern a people. But you see, this argument form has a predictable form. And it is basically, at the heart of it, a comparison between similar things. Obviously, the things that are similar here are the things of houses. There's two different houses in view. There's a man's house, and then there's the house of God. But it's not just that two houses are being compared. That is a point of similarity. But I think we can say the key, or the heart of the similarity, is the rule in the two houses. It is the rule in one's own house, and it is the rule in the house of God which is at stake. And maybe even one more element is here which is key, and that is inequity. Inequity. In other words, the things being compared are self-evidently not of the same quality or value. You see, they're not of the same quality or value in God's eyes. The, the man's home is not of the same value as God's home, right? Psalm 87 tells us that. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. That doesn't mean that God is disrespecting the dwelling places of Jacob. It does not mean that God doesn't care about your home. Your home is to be under Christ and the Lord, and the, love, the Lord loves your home. All that's being said is there is an inequity. There is a difference in value in the sight of God between the man's home and God's home. 
And so we have houses being compared, and that leads us to think about the houses for a moment, because maybe that will help us get into the concept of inequity and, and the force of the argument itself. His house, what's in view? Well, clearly, when you think of his house, it begins with that man. A, a man's rule of himself is foundational to all good government in his home. If the man himself isn't self-ruled and self-governed and self-disciplined as the head of his home, there's no way we can imagine that his home will be ruled well. It's quite obvious to us that this home includes his wife and his children. And so the way he manages his relationship with his wife is about how he manages his home. That there must be peace in their relationship. There must be love in their relationship. There must be real care and concern in their relationship. After all, who would want a man to have spiritual oversight of the families of the church if he doesn't even like his own? If he doesn't like his wife, he doesn't like his children, why would I want him ruling over and being a spiritual guide to other families? It's illogical. Beyond that, uh, his own house would involve everything else, his finances, his stewardship of his, of his property, and, and, and the orderliness of, of, of the whole of it. So his own house is a fairly large concept, but then when you compare it over against God's house, you begin to realize that there indeed is an inequity here. Paul does like to use house to refer to the church, but can I just give you one place that's within a stone's throw of our text? And that's um, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And as you look down at your passage this morning, you can see that at the end of expounding upon the offices and officers and their qualifications, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you. Well, what's he referring to? He says, I'm writing these things. Well, it, everything he's just said here, at least, right? We could agree on that. I'm writing to them, hoping to come to you, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you will know how you conduct yourself in the household of God. Here we are. Here's our term, household of God. So we know we're dealing with what the apostle is speaking about here when he speaks of the church of God. It's the house of God. But I want you to notice how he qualifies it. You see what follows up here on this household of God? It's the church of the living God, the pillar, and the support of the truth. Both of those clauses now qualify and expand upon what is this house of God and what is its value. And one of the things that makes the church valuable, I think we could even say it's a thing that makes it valuable above all, is it's God's house. It is not a man's house. It is not a human house. It is, it is not a house of human institution. It is a divinely owned and possessed and constructed house. And it is a house with a peculiar function. And that is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. These are architectural terms. And pillar means a, a tall vertical column which extends from floor to ceiling and holds up the roof. And, and the word support here is an architectural term which is a, a smaller 
um, a smaller brace, if you will, which holds that pillar in place. But imagine here what Paul is saying with this idea, the pillar and the support of the truth. The purpose and the function of the household of God is to take the Word of God and to hold it up and to hold it high and to hold it steady. The church is the proclaimer of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as we think from the function of the church, it's quite evident about the value of the church. There's no other institution under heaven that does this. This is the call and the task of the church to hold up the word high, to hold it steady, and to proclaim it to the world. But I think you could also argue that when you see these things in verse 4, most scholars would say it reaches all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 2, where where Paul begins to speak here about prayers in the context of the public worship of the church. So if we just grab what's here in the context, we begin to understand the exceeding precious value of the household of God. It's for the purpose of of holding up and holding out the Word of God. It is the place of, of spiritual government where Christ has instituted His officers and offices for the governance and, and the well-being of the church. It is the place where worship is to be conducted, where there is the public and holy convocations and assemblies of the people of God. This house of God is a house of great value. Your home is wonderful. But there is an inequity here. The household of God has a greater value because God has endowed it with a greater value. And so the linchpin of it all becomes this, management. Management. Because of the the value of that house, what God would have is people who are qualified to be in that house. And so the apostle sets forth a lesser to greater argument here, and he casts it in a negative form. A negative form has the answer implied in it. He says, if a man does not know how to manage his own house, the lesser house, then how will he take care of the church of God? Now, the the question has the answer implied. The question has the answer implied. Why would any reasonable person conclude that a person that cannot handle the the responsibility of rule of his own house should have the greater responsibility of rule in the house of God over multiple homes? That leads me back to Calvin's lead comment. Those who are practiced in the duties of human intercourse are trained and adapted for the governance of the church. If a man is delinquent and untrained and incompetent in the duties of leadership in his own home, he's certainly not going to be prepared for leadership within the house of God. It doesn't mean he can't get better. It doesn't mean he can't improve. It doesn't mean that he may repair the ruins that he's made. But here is the basic and minimum requirement. A person must have distinguished himself over a period of time, trained in Household management to show that he does it well. Men, this morning you need to understand that your home is the proving ground for eldership. Your home is the proving ground 
for eldership. I think we need to appreciate this morning what Paul does for us. He makes an argument for the value of this kind of preparation. There surely is an oddity that the main form of preparation we do for training men for ministry is to put them away in a seminary for three years away from the hum and the buzz of life. Surely something is discordant here with the way the Word of God speaks about preparation. And certainly the same would be true for eldership, that if a person thinks that the best way they can prepare themselves for eldership is to get away from everybody and to be uh, secluded and to be, lead a contemplative life, uh, shut up in a room, locked up in a room with their books. They've misunderstood, as Calvin himself says, experience is what teaches the prudence and the wise. That the best training is ordinary life. And the good news is, if God is giving you a home, He's giving you a field of operations to train upon. There's one other element to this condition of household management, and it's the complexity now of this condition. And there's just two parts to it. There's one very, we can say very little about it just now, but I do point it out, and I I don't think it's a throwaway word, okay? Look at it in verse 5, and let's see if you see it too. If a man does not know how. We have an English word called know-how, right? And we use know-how, we, we say, we, we, we use that to, you know, to express the fact that somebody has technical skills. They have some basic ability, right? They have the know-how. Paul uses this language here. And, and it's basically saying there's a know-how to managing the home well. And we'll come back into that. And it's interesting that he um, puts the spotlight for the measuring of a person's aptitude, their know-how, into how they manage their children, okay? But, but I do think it's important to see that this condition of, of, of house management is connected to and bound up with what might be a technical component here. The complex idea of this condition is that there is a know-how, there is a skill that has been developed, acquired, and cultivated. And we could say more about that in just a moment as we think about how the apostle would have us measure it in terms of the care of the family. But there's one other component uh, to this rule here, this household management, which I think is, is very crucial for us to get. And, uh, you know, the reason why it stands out is because the apostle has, has been using a particular word for rule, and then he substitutes with another term. I want you to see at the end of verse 5, take care of. Take care of. You see, in verse 4, he says, He who manages his household well. And then he comes into verse 5 and uses it again. Does not know how to manage his own household. And then when he begins to shift gears and talk about the greater, the, the house of God, he changes to this word, take care of. Take care of. And it's a substitution, which means that the apostle, instead of using the word manage, is using what he would regard as a synonymous term, but the fact that it's used at the end of the string suggests to us that this particular word draws out the deep 
sense of the meaning that he has in view when he speaks of this management. And so as we come to the third term, take care of, here's where we begin to grasp the deep, complex nature of the management the Apostle Paul is speaking of. And and so I zero in on the term for just a moment because it's so crucial to the understanding of the sense of this management. And you know what's so interesting to us about this term manage is that it's used in, in only one other text of Scripture in the New Testament. And that one other text of Scripture in the New Testament is Luke chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. And this is the text about the, the Good Samaritan. And here's what we read in the Word of God. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine in them. He put them on his beast and he brought him to the inn. And he took care of him. Notice here, took care of him. Took care of him. You see, uh, we could see everything that is um, th- that has been done by the Good Samaritan here so far in this text in verse thirty-five fits under the category of took care of him. He came to him, he and he and then he acted. He didn't turn aside like the like the Levite and, and, and the rabbi did. No, he came to him and then he bandaged him. He poured oil and wine upon him and he put him on his beast and he carried to him and he took care of him. And then the word occurs again in verse 35. On the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. But I I think it's essential for us as we gain insight into the kind of management and home care the apostle speaks of is that we come to this text to, about the Good Samaritan, we begin to, to learn about the depths of what kind of management is in view. And the kind of management that is in view is a compassionate management, a, a, a helpful management. He is fixing what is broken. And so it's a kind of management which is healing and restorative and wholesome. That's the kind of skill that is involved in the way the Apostle Paul is thinking about rule. That's very important for us to think about because the Apostle substitutes it and makes it a synonym for rule or manage. It's of interest to us that Peter is thinking along these same lines in 1 Peter chapter 5 because he says there that the the leader or the elder should lead the people of God with the compassion of a servant. And so when we think about what distinguishes a man for the eldership, we think here about this great quality of take care of, the kind of exercise of leadership which doesn't just manage or lead, but does it in such a way that it promotes healing and wholeness. And restoration. So that's what's in view here as we're thinking now about this condition. What is this condition of, of household management? What's the kind of management which is edifying? It's the kind of management which builds and makes whole. So come in now to our text and let's let's backtrack into verse 4. We'll begin to see the manner of this management because now we begin to, to plumb the depths of what the apostle is after here. And uh, the first thing that we see about the manner of this management is excellence. He 
must be one who manages his own household well. So here we're talking about this leadership angle, this management thing, which certainly means rule and direct and lead. But really the key term here is not just the rule, it's the, it's the adverb well. Well. And um, maybe we lose a little something, we bring it into English. Because the real force and strength of, of this term, uh, well, means noble. It means that which is noble, that which is honorable, that which is of fine moral character. You see, we can never get away from, uh, from this idea of spiritual excellence when we're thinking about the qualities of the office of elder. Here we think we might have come to something that feels very functional. And it is. Leadership is a kind of functional attribute and quality, but the thing that we can't miss here is even in being functional, even it's in its functionality. It's, it's inseparable from what is right and proper and true and noble and worthy. And so, what is the first quality of the manner of management? Well, it's, a, it's about rule that is noble, moral, Honorable. That brings us to the second. Um, that's what I would say is best translated by gravity. Now, the New American Standard has dignity. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But the quality of rule here is what we're getting at. And I'm going to make the argument for it, but this is the key quality this is another one of those aspects of the of the manner of management and it's bound up with gravity and yet the apostle paul says that the way we can see the nature or the manner of this management is in relationship to how a father treats his children i want us to read all that follows in that light and i'll give the explanation for it as we work our way through but but the apostle all of a sudden switches here from this uh, elder and his management, and he talks about keeping his children under control with all dignity. And, and all of this is important because here we're thinking about children. I said at the outset, I do not believe we can make the case that in every situation, a man who would be qualified for the eldership must be married and must have children. The working assumption here is that the man, um, if he has them, must have shown something about the way he manages house that would be a measuring stick for fitness to service in the house of God. Otherwise, we're going to run into all kinds of problems. Uh, for example, the Apostle Paul may have been married, but we certainly have no evidence whatsoever that, that he um, had children and yet called by God to be an elder in his church. So the issue here is if a man has children, and I think that this word children refer to, to children who live in the home probably from any way from, from infancy to the late teenage years, uh, somebody that, that lives under the roof, somebody that would be regarded as being under the authority of the father. And the thing that is to characterize those children here, the apostle said, is they are under control. They are under control. And this word control is a very powerful term. It, it's, uh, all, it's all obedience and submission. 
And this is on the, the dad's uh, side. He's the one that is to lead his children in this. Certainly it is a child's responsibility to obey their parents. Remember, the Word of God says that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. If you are a child here, if you live under your parents' roof here, if, um, as uh, my grandpa used to say, if you put your feet under my table, I don't know if your dad ever used that language, if you put your feet under my table. See, the calling of the child is to obey their parents and to honor their father and mother. It is a command. And so all young people here today, you're to take this as a command. The apostle is speaking to you even though he's talking about your dad. You are to honor your father. You are to obey him. You are to be submissive to him. Without talk back. But, but the issue here is not so much the children. The issue here is um, the way they're doing it. And, and so I, you can find some greater insight into what the apostle has in mind about the kind of obedience which is reflective of proper household management. You turn over to Titus 1.6, for example. Titus 1.6, where it says, um, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So here you have uh, the expansion upon what the Apostle is speaking of here about household management in Titus 1.6. And he speaks about children. He says two particular things about them. And the first is that they believe. Now, believe me when I say a lot of ink has been spilled over the meaning of believe. Uh, uh, Does this mean conversion status? They are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for salvation. The word can mean this. Or does this word believe mean faithful? And it can mean that. So here that would be a moral quality. And so I think we have to ask the question for a moment. I do think it's an important question. And you could, you could see why it's an important question. Because one of the things that is in the backdrop here is, is pagans who are being brought into the church and, and they're bringing their family with them. And one of the questions would be, well, has this father taken time to disciple his children in the faith, to lead them to Christ? This important thing that would have in the context really mattered. So you could make, I think, a fairly reasonable case uh, about whether this is um, having to do with, with conversion or believing. But, but then we remember that, that as much as a father teaches his children the truth, he can't convert them, right? He cannot. So why would we make the qualification for office something that isn't in the hands of that man? And by the way, there's all kinds of children that make profession of faith when they're younger and fall away from the church too. So uh, this could only be for a period of time. And I've watched that happen plenty in my life in the Reformed Church. In fact, I can say very sadly that I've seen lots of pastors and elders' kids fall away from the church. And some never have been restored. So this is something that's scary. But I don't choose faithful over believing because it's scary. I think the thing that really tips it in the balance or in the favor of character is because what follows in the expansion clause here. Not accused of disobation or rebellion. You see, the apostle here is not speaking about conversion. He's speaking about moral discipline. He's speaking about character. What are the children like? 
are they living a life of dissipation and rebellion? In other words, are they reckless and wild and undisciplined? Which uh, all to itself is, is an indictment of the world and the era I grew up in because it was just understood that every pastor's kid was going to be, you know, a pastor's kid. <laughs> Breaking all of the rules to prove something with a giant chip on the shoulder. And then, of course, sometimes they had great conversion stories after sowing the wild oats coming back to Jesus. But everybody knew that was going to be the case. But the apostle here does not say that. He says one of the things that is required is that the man who rules his house well is the kind of man who has children that aren't riotous and rebellious and undisciplined. And that much the apostle is saying that that father has within his hands. And so now we come back to our text and we say, well, how could that be? And that's because of the manner of the, of the, the oversight. The manner of the oversight, which we said is about gravity or dignity. So look back at your text here. I know we've done some things that feel a little bit picky, but... We need to in order to understand this qualification which is before us. But, but I want you to notice this phrase, keeping his children under control. Yes, he's supposed to do that with all dignity. Now, the real question comes in here is, uh, whose dignity? Is the dignity the expression of the child in their obedience? Or is the dignity the manner of the father in seeking the compliance of the child? Two different things, right? They may overlap. They may be interrelated. But they are not the same. So the question here is the qualification of the office of the elder that his children are obedient to him and they're dignified in their obedience? Or is the question here that the elder so manages his children with dignity that they supply obedience. Very different, right? Because one is the manner by which the father manages, and the other would be the expression, if you will, of the management. But it seems to me this text is all about the manner of how the man manages. He must manage well. He must have know-how. He must take care of. See, the issue here is not the child. The issue is the way that the dad seeks to manage. And the children have become the measuring stick. Because the way he cultivates and, and, and fashions that relationship with his children is an indication of this man's soul and also an indication of this man's ability to handle leadership well. So he must do it with all dignity, with respectability, with gravity. That's the correct interpretation. It's about the way the man goes about his business of ruling his home. And so that involves all that we can think of. He, he manages proper with good leadership. He does it well, that is nobly. He, he takes care of his house, that is with a wholesomeness and a constructiveness and and uh, in such a way that it blesses. When a man rules with all dignity in his home, it compels the children to be submissive 
and obedient. And why is that important? Because just because you get to be an elder in Christ's church doesn't mean you get to run around barking orders at everybody inspecting they're going to just fall into line. In fact, the more, I would say, that a pastor and elder seek to command and compel obedience, one of two things will happen. People will leave. Well, maybe three. People will leave. People will vote you out. Or you'll have a cult. So which do you want? Do you want to have no church? Do you want to be replaced? Or do you want to have a Kool-Aid drinking church? That's really how it works. If you view the authority of eldership as one which is compulsory, you see, elders in Christ's church don't rule by compulsion and coercion, they rule by the force of their character, of their behavior, is persuasive. Very different. They rule with the word. They rule with the spirit of Christ within them. It is not a compulsory thing. And so then, we can tell whether a man is fit to rule in the church by how he seeks to gain compliance in his home. If he seeks to rule by a drill sergeant in his home, he's no good for the church. He'll need to, he'll need to tone down. He'll need to be toned down. Otherwise, he'll be like this person that we saw last week or the week before that um, is pugnacious and uh, argumentative. Well, that brings us into the third component here. Because the apostle has placed the, uh, the, the man's relationship to his children and the manner of how he conducts himself in that relationship, since he's put that in the spotlight and made that the, the biggest portion of the measuring stick for us this morning, it's going to be helpful for us to go to another passage that helps unfold for us what it looks like when a father uh, seeks to bring his children uh, under control with all dignity. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, because here the Apostle Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shows what it looks like for a father to, to rule well, to manage well, to, to seek to bring those children into a right relationship and to build their, their character and build them up even spiritually. So look at, at verse 4. There's really two parts to the exposition. There's negative and there's positive. So, so let's start with the negative because that's where Paul starts. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke. It means to incite anger, to make resentful, or to goad them to anger. And Colossians 3.21 puts it just slightly differently. He says, don't exasperate your children. That is, embitter them. Why? Because he says they will lose heart. You see, when, when, when a man crushes a child in order to get their compliance, what does he do? He makes that child lose heart. The, uh, the word in the original, I think, could be best translated this way, lose spirit. You've seen somebody that's dispirited, right? Their, their will is just taken. They feel ineffectual. They've been crushed. 
So that to me implies a, a set of behaviors or a pattern of behavior. You're not going to crush your kid over one wrong thing you've done. Believe me. Kids are way more resentful than that. I'm not resentful. Uh, they're, they're stronger than that. They're more resourceful than that. You're not going to get it one time. It's a pattern of how you seek to rule. Okay? By the way, parents, and I say this as a dad. I'm very open. I failed a million times as a father. A million times. And, and I, you know, you just have to bring that under the blood and seek to learn, you know? But, but we're talking about a pattern here. And are you growing? Are you learning how to do this very hard thing of raising a child? Which everybody reminds us, they don't come with an instruction manual. And, you know, we have the Bible. We do our best with it, but it's complicated. It's not always easy because each child has their own personality and needs and all of these things. But, but you know, here's what we're trying to, to, to get to here. He says, we don't provoke them. We don't needlessly exasperate them with, with senseless um, discipline. So we're not harsh to them. We're not irritable. We don't criticize. We don't show favorites. We praise them. We seek to, to bless them. We don't hold, um, withhold affection from them. Those are all the ways you embitter a child and make them angry. That's provocational. We don't do that. We don't seek to be provocational. There may be times we have to be firm and our child is very resentful of it. Okay, that's life. They're going to learn. But there's the balance here, first of all. There's a way or a manner of ruling to seek to bring under control and it does not begin with provocation. But let's look at the positive side because I think this is where we gain the most insight. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I've never been sure why bring up is the way we translate this, because the very same word, if you're in 6.4, put your finger on it over here in verse 28 of chapter 5. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. Uh, he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. And cherishes it. That's your word for bring up. Maybe because it wouldn't sound sensible in English to say nourishes up. Okay, but that's that's the sense here. And the Apostle Paul is, is saying to the husband, uh, you're commanded by God to love your wife. Okay? And the reason is because she is you. Remember, you're one flesh. The reason the apostle gives for the, the, the husband's duty is because there is a unity. She is you. There's realism in his language and in his very argument because look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh. If she is you, he says, you don't hate your flesh. You don't hate her. She's you. You're one. He nourishes it. And that word nourish is a rich word to, to care for. It's kind of absurd the apostle says no one ever hated his own flesh because it's so obviously true. You show me a person that doesn't hydrate themselves, doesn't feed themselves, doesn't clothe themselves, doesn't give rest to themselves, doesn't engage in basic care of themselves. It's an absurdity because that's not, it doesn't happen that way unless some, some major mental breakdown has occurred here. 
people do this. And, and in other words, it's to provide everything that is needed to sustain life, but not just the basics, but all that makes it whole and well and happy and, and blessed. This is where I bring back in the term take care of. You, you, you see, that, that good Samaritan didn't, didn't look at the, the man that had been stabbed and beaten and left for dead and, and stripped bare of his clothes alongside the road and come up to him and say, here's a, here's a, here's a water bottle. Take care of yourself. Is that what he did? He, he didn't say, well, you know, you're in a really bad place and I'm going to pray for you as I'm walking on my way to Jericho. That man came alongside that busted up, wounded, left for dead individual and he poured uh, wine and oil in his wounds and he carefully placed bandages upon them and then he picked him up off the ground and he cradled him in his arms and he put him on his donkey and he gently led him back to this place where he could get more care to restore and to make whole and to, to bless. All of that is what's in view here. And this would bring them up. It's redemptive. It's full of the love of Christ. You can't do this without the blood of Christ. That's what's in view here. And it's not just a husband towards his wife. It's a man towards his child. And so that's what the Apostle is saying. This is how he manages that relationship to bring under control and to obedience. He does it with dignity, with gravity, with love. With an aim to bless, to build, to restore, to make whole. Full of dignity. For the life of me, I've known some, I hate to say it, Reformed believers, who almost make it a badge of honor that they don't treat their kids well. They don't give them affection. They don't provide for their needs. They basically have a tough love approach to tra training them to children. Well, they'll figure it out, or they'll get it together, or I, di I didn't have any help when I was a kid, so they're going to figure it out in the moment. They're, they'll thank me. It's like the, the Johnny Cash song, the boy named, named Sue, right? He's going to have to be tough, because you give him that name and let him go on his own. There are some people take it as a badge of honor to treat their kids this way. That's not what he says here. That's not the management that's with all dignity. No, it, it nourishes. And the next is discipline. We may think this is about purely correction. It's not. The next one is. Discipline here is a holistic concept. It, it's a word that's typically used for education. So it's about teaching them. Not just by catechism, it would obviously include that. There would be that kind of instruction, but, but teaching by, by modeling and behave by mentoring, by, by, um, by building them up with uh, helping to promote self-discipline and teaching them the tools that are necessary for life, like honoring people and showing respect and being courteous and, and developing, cultivating self-control, knowing how to work, things like that. Those are the kinds of things that are bound up with this word discipline. It's about promoting and strengthening and reinforcing character. And then you come to the last one and it says instruction. This is poorly translated at this point because it means correction. 
This is nuthasia, nuthateo. It's the confrontational kind of correction. When you see what's going wrong and you stop it and you correct it. And so it happens that, that managing your house with dignity sometimes means a spanking. Sometimes it means real discipline. Because if a father doesn't love his child enough to correct them in discipline, he doesn't love them. That's the plain truth. If a father doesn't love his children enough to correct them and to discipline and turn them away from error and things that will destroy them spiritually and morally, he doesn't love them. It's not nice not to discipline your kid. And I, I hate it when people talk about nice parenting. That has nothing to do with biblical concept and terminology of parenting. Sometimes there has to be real correction. And so there's reprimand. There's discipline. But you see, this is all of that goes into the very way in which he manages. The Apostle Paul is the one that put this relationship between a father and his children in the spotlight. He says, this is how we're going to measure his leadership abilities. Can he nurture and develop a relationship? Can he seek to bring his children under the authority of God in a way that shows gentleness and compassion and kindness with firmness? And let me just say this morning, young people, if you live in that home, you should thank God every single day for it. If you live in a home where your dad loves you enough to spank you, to reprimand you, to teach you, to encourage you, to pray with you, to catechize you, to hug you. You live in a great place. You live in a great place. You should give God thanks for it. And because of the way your dad shows that to you, it will make you want to do all the more to please him and your mom. If you don't do that, you deserve to be disciplined. It's a horrible testimony that you wouldn't be thankful for all of that. And so, men, God has set before you a training ground. He has set before you a training ground. And, well, the good news, it's your home. It's your home. It's the place that you're already naturally inclined to love. It's already a place that you're inclined to want to care for. It involves relationships with people who you love and that you've chosen to be with and that you want to bless. And God said that place, men, for you this morning is the best place in the world for you to be, to develop your ability to glorify God with the life He gave you. Because that place is this precious training ground for learning how to grow in the ability to lead other people in a way that blesses them. And so I want to be an encouragement to you men this morning. He's given you great work. He's given you noble work. He's given you blessed work. You have the greatest opportunity that a man can have, and that is the opportunity to shape the lives of people to come the next generation, your children, and that extends to the grandchildren and to the great-grandchildren and hopefully the great-great-grandchildren. There's nothing like the opportunity to be a father and to be the head of the whole. And so privilege has been set before you. 
to care for and bless and promote, to bring wholeness. And when you do that, you're praying, or rather you're preparing to be a leader in the house of God. And so I conclude once again this morning, people of God, particularly talking to the men, eldership is excellent work. Eldership is excellent work. And we see the excellent work here. It's this taking care of the people of God in such a way that you're blessing them. And you're seeking to to build them and to make them whole. It's great work. The qualifications for eldership are excellent. They are about leadership done the right way, God's way, in God's training ground appointed for you, which is in the home you love and with the people you love more than anyone on earth. And so the challenge is set before you. Strive. One man who might read somewhat on this topic said, this is the place for holy sweat and exertion. The leadership of your home, the blessing of your wife and your children, so that it will be unto their good. And so, if I can borrow or riff on John Calvin, those who are wise have learned by experience that the best preparation and training are in the ordinary spheres of life. This is what God is giving for you. I pray that all the men of this congregation will seek it. They'll cultivate it. And the fruit of it will be for them and for their family and for their home and for the people of God.